Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Can a mid-infrared view reveal the universe's secrets? This week on Naked Astronomy, we meet MIRI, the mid-infrared instrument set to launch on the James Webb Space Telescope. It should give us a glimpse of the very first galaxies. We'll also find out how distorted galaxies can shed light on the distribution of dark matter. I'm Ben Valsler and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, detecting dark matter. Oxford University's Dr Lance Miller explains to Andrew Ponson how we can use distortions caused by the gravitational pull of dark matter to explore its distribution. The idea is that we're trying to detect something that we can't see, which is dark matter in the universe. And we think that most of the mass in the universe, in fact, is made up of dark matter rather than atoms and molecules and things that we're familiar with on Earth. And the trouble is, if we can't see it, how can we detect it? And the idea is that, nonetheless, dark matter still has a gravitational effect on things around it, And in particular, it has a gravitational effect on light rays as well as uh, ordinary matter. So what we can do in gravitational lensing is we can try and detect the gravitational effect on light rays from other ordinary galaxies as the light rays pass dark matter clumps. Those light rays get bent. So in some way, if we can measure the bending of light rays as they pass through the universe, we can work out how much dark matter there is there. It turns out we can do this, at least statistically, Because if we make a a very deep survey of the sky covering a very large area, we can detect very distant galaxies. And when we look at the shapes of those galaxies, we find that they are systematically always very slightly distorted, only by a a few percent in their shapes. So how do you know that the the galaxies are distorted? Because presumably you don't know what they look like in the first place. Yeah, and that's why we have to do it statistically, because in general, if, if galaxies were all nice circular objects on the sky we could measure their real shapes uh, or the shapes that they appear to be and uh, and hence work out what the distortion is but as you say we don't know that but what we do know is that on average galaxies should be randomly oriented on the sky and the effect of having a big clump of dark matter in the, along the line of sight is that all the galaxies in that region of the sky all get stretched in one particular direction or rather they appear to get stretched in the images that we measure And so what we do is we basically average together all the shapes of all the galaxies in that region of the sky. And if we find that they're systematically oriented in one direction, we know that there's been some stretching of of the light rays as they went past that particular region of space. Recently, you've been in the news because you were working on a project with the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope. Could you tell us a bit about what you were doing with that and uh, what kind of results have come out of it? Yeah, so the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope Lensing Survey um, is an attempt to try and measure this effect over quite a big area of the sky and to quite a big volume of the universe. The problem is that because it's a weak, gravitational lensing is a weak effect that we're measuring, um, we need a very large number of galaxies to be able to get a good measurement of it and indeed to be able to get a good measurement for how much dark matter there is in the universe. So the idea was to take a, a really big survey covering a large area of the sky and, in fact, uh, the CFHT Lensing Survey 
covers uh, about 160 square degrees on the sky. Um, and for reference, the, the full moon, if you look at it, is about half a degree across. So these are quite big chunks of sky spread up over various constellations. Uh, and we've measured the shapes of about 10 million galaxies or so, uh, which go out to quite significant cosmological distances. And what that means is that we've been able to map the distribution of dark matter over volumes of the universe that are billions of light years across and hence make what is so far anyway the, the largest sort of map of the dark matter distribution in the universe. And has that basically agreed with what you expected to see or have there been any surprises? Well so far um, it seems to be pretty much in agreement with the sort of standard cosmological model which has it that the theory of gravity is, called, is according to Einstein's general relativity and that most of the mass in the universe is made up of, of dark matter rather than uh, atoms. In a way, that's uh, it'd be nice to have a more surprising result because yeah, we always like to find uh, surprising, unexpected things. But also in this case, it's it's nice as well to have some confirmation at least that our cosmological models are, are going somewhere in the right direction. So looking towards the future, presumably you're going to be mapping wider areas of the sky and doing it in more detail. Yeah, that's right. There's a few more surveys being done from ground-based telescopes in the next few years. There's a big new survey being run by the European Southern Observatory, which has telescopes in Chile, which a whole consortium of European countries uh, sign up to. So that's going to be something like 10 times the sky area of the CFHT lensing survey. So uh, a number of us are involved in that survey. And what that will do is map an even larger volume of the universe. So we'll be able to probe distributions of dark matter in the universe on even larger scales, which will be an even better test of uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity and the the general cosmological model that we have. Looking even further into the future, to make even more improvements and make more precise measurements, it's clear that we need to be able to have uh, measurements that we can make from space. And that's because we can measure the shapes of galaxies much more precisely from space. We don't have the uh, confusing effect of the Earth's atmosphere distorting the images for us. And, in fact, the European Space Agency, which, again, is a pan-European consortium of countries that that do uh, space missions, has recently agreed to launch in about 2019 a mission called Euclid, which will try and do just this experiment. It will try and measure about something like a third of the entire sky to very great precision, trying to measure this gravitational lensing effect and hence making the the biggest map yet of, of dark matter with very high precision. Lance Miller talking to Andrew Ponson. We've received lots of good science questions this month and I've put them, as usual, to Andrew Ponson, Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford. Ola Gabrielson asks about the physics behind us having two high tides per day. Well, the ocean tides are created by the effect of the moon's gravity on the water here on Earth. And in particular, it's the way that gravity drops off very sharply with distance away from the moon. And you have what's known as a differential effect that creates these tides. And what it is, is on the near side of the Earth to the moon, that's where the moon's gravity pulls much more strongly on the near side of the Earth than it does on the far side. So that means the water in the oceans just under the moon gets pulled up into a bulge and that creates a high tide, which then tracks the moon round as the Earth rotates underneath it. So that's the obvious high tide, but of course there's a one that happens 12 hours later. And 
That's due to the way that the Earth is pulled slightly more strongly towards the Moon than the water on the far side. So that effectively gets left behind a little to leave a bulge on the other side. You therefore get one tide on the near side, one on the far side, and the Earth rotates underneath them and they slowly track round, follow the Moon in orbit. Sometimes you get effects if the Sun is in line with the Moon or on the opposite side of the Earth from the Moon, and that can affect the height of the tides, but effectively that's why you have two high tides every day. So it's not just the case that the moon pulls all of the water on Earth into, into an egg shape and we then move around that, which would give us one high tide every day. Instead, you've actually got the fact that the Earth is getting pulled along, leaving that extra envelope of water. So we expect to see the second tide considerably smaller than the first, or is that effect enough to balance out? They're approximately the same, and there is some argument about whether there's a small amount of centrifugal force also that contributes to the height of the second tide to make it slightly bigger. If you read in the literature, there are conflicting conclusions about how important that is and whether we should take that into account, because, of course, the Earth and the Moon both orbit around somewhere that's not quite at the centre of the Earth, and that then would, if there is a centrifugal contribution, just increase the far side of the tide, but not the near tide. And sticking with physics, Brian Shelf asks if the laws of physics are the same everywhere in the universe. Well, as far as we know, yes, they are. But Brian is right. It's perfectly true. This is an assumption that we have to make in cosmology. And it's quite a bold assumption that when we're looking out into space, the objects we're seeing obey the same laws of physics that we've determined by experiments on Earth. Now, I'll try and justify that assumption by talking about how we go about studying the heavens and trying to understand them. Now, when you first look out at the sky and you see structures out there and you want to understand where they've come from, you don't, to begin with, have any idea whether the laws of physics might change across space. So you make the simplest possible assumption that you can make, and that is that the laws of physics are the same all across space. And you see how far you can get with that simplest assumption before you start to see structures that you can't explain with the laws of physics we have. Now, in fact, it turns out we've gone a very long way with that very simple assumption. We've been able to explain how stars form, how galaxies form, and how we think the universe has come out of, of a Big Bang over the last 15 billion years, all using this set of rather bold assumptions that these laws of physics are universal. And we haven't yet found anything where we've had to say, no, we can't explain that. So until we find something which gives us evidence to the contrary, I think we have to assume the laws of physics are the same everywhere. I can think of a couple of particularly clear-cut examples where it does seem really very strongly the case that the laws of physics aren't the same. And the first is the spectra of objects that we look at in space, which have particular colours missing from those spectra that we call absorption lines. And those arise because there are atoms in the atmospheres of those objects which have electrons orbiting them, and the electrons are making transitions between different states, and those transitions have very specific colours associated with them. Now, if you go back to the lab on Earth, and you take those same atoms, and you make them undergo the same transitions, you get exactly the same colours coming out. And so the laws of quantum mechanics seem to be very definitely the same in objects in space to in our labs on Earth. The other, I think, very clear-cut example is the cosmic microwave background, which is the radiation from the fireball that came out of the Big Bang and which was glowing red hot with the heat of that explosion. Now, the shape of the spectrum of the cosmic microwave background exactly corresponds to a shape of the spectrum 
of, for example, a red-hot glowing coal. And so we know that the laws of thermal physics appear to be the same half a million years after the Big Bang when we're seeing the cosmic microwave background and today when you're looking at a glowing red-hot coal in your fire. So I think there's very strong evidence that the laws of physics are universal across the whole universe. And I think you've already answered this by talking about the cosmic microwave background, but we also presumably make the same assumptions about looking back in time. So it's not just that we think the laws of physics are the same in every different location, but we think they have been the same pretty much as far back as we can see. Yes, that's right. Uh, The same argument really applies. We have no reason to think the laws of physics wouldn't have changed over time, except that we're still waiting to see any evidence that they have evolved over time. So without that evidence, you have to assume they have always been the same. And we'll be back with more science questions later on. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come, we'll meet MIRI, the mid-infrared instrument due to fly on the James Webb Space Telescope. But first, with a roundup of exciting news from the Royal Astronomical Society, here's Robert Massey. Well, uh, one of the, the meetings we had here at the RAS uh, was focused on the history of astronomical imaging. Now, of course, uh, a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, in fact, we had the 400th anniversary of the use of the telescope for astronomy. And, and of course, as soon as telescopes were invented and pointed at the night sky, it then became of vital importance to actually record what people were seeing. And, of course, for more than two centuries, the only way of doing that was to record it by drawing what you saw or, in some cases, painting and making quite elaborate imagery. And it was only really in the second half of the 19th century with the invention of photography and then digital imaging in the latter part of the 20th century and now, obviously, in the century and today, uh, that, that that changed. So there was a really long period of time when people depended on trying to depict as accurately as they could, although doubtless with quite a lot of artistic license, what they saw and doing that with pen and ink or with a paintbrush. I assume that these would have been people who also had an interest in things like cartography. So actually the the ability to accurately draw things had developed long before we were pointing telescopes at the sky. That's entirely true, but there there does seem to be a sort of distinct pattern in the way that people did it. And, for example, uh, Thomas Harriot, who uh, made some of the earliest sketches, or the earliest sketches of the moon, was very much about precision in in alignment and making making sure things were in the right place. Whereas Galileo, for example, had an artist training, and he was very good at actually depicting, if you look at, for example, his illustrations of the moon, what the moon looked like, or giving, giving a sense of that. Uh, but he was actually less good on getting things to scale. So it, it really depends to some extent, I think, on your background as to how you decided to run things forward. And it becomes increasingly complicated. If you look at the kind of maps, for example, the moon that were developed in the second half of the 17th century, they're fiendishly complicated. They've got superimposed detail, let, let alone as you go into the 18th and 19th century. And it gets harder and harder as time goes on. So um, it does illustrate really uh, just how much it depends on what the observer actually thinks they're seeing, their perception, and how they translate that to the page. And presumably the advantage with the modern techniques we have is that they are, to an extent, objective. That, that's exactly right. I think the big change with the advent of photography was that it, you know, at least, even if, I mean, one can, you, know, you can have enormously long discussions about whether you know, a photograph is really an accurate depiction of something or not. But if you're both using the same technique, if two, two observers use the same technique and they take a picture with the same kind of camera and the same film, then at least that kind of uncertainty is taken out of it. So 
in the sense of the scientific process, it, ta- it, it standardizes something, and that had to be a great value in the way these things were understood. Of course, the downside is that the eye is actually extremely good at seeing really fine detail, and cameras, at least to begin with, weren't as good as that. You know, they were very good at long exposures, but the right up till, I guess, the 1980s and beyond with, with the CCDs, the kind of things you find in modern digital cameras, Actually, it was quite difficult to see very fine planetary detail. You, you, and to get that, actually, the drawing by hand was still one of the best ways to record it. We've also had a bit of a discussion about what we should do about near-Earth objects. Now, first of all, tell me what we mean by these. These are things that potentially could get a bit too close. It's, it's a, a sort of perennial discussion, really. There's Occasionally, the worry bubbles up about the fact that the solar system, unfortunately, is not just uh, populated by the sun and eight planets and a few of the small objects. There are an awful lot, literally, well, it, it's fair to say, millions of other things flying around there as well. Now, you know, you can also say that the solar system is mostly empty because the distribution of these things is, is very wide. But there are nonetheless, perhaps, you know, 8,000 objects in the vicinity of the Earth that are known at the moment that go around the sun in paths that take them sometimes right across the Earth's orbit, uh, sometimes between Earth and and Mars, and sometimes within the orbit of the Earth. They're what you'd describe in other circumstances as asteroids. Um, So often they're referred to as near-Earth asteroids, but some of them are a bit more like comets as well, and some of them are so small that they're more like boulders. But there's a lot of this stuff out there, and so it isn't surprising that now now and again some of it hits us. And what's being proposed? What should we do about it? Well, this is this is almost like the you know the, the billion dollar question, perhaps in the in terms of the amount of money you'd need to spend. Um, there are really good projects to to monitor them, and uh, the various robotic telescopes and Space Guard project, and there's a robotic one by the name of Linear, for example. All of these all of these are automatically scanning the skies, looking for objects that move from one night to the next, uh, cross-referencing them against existing asteroid orbits we know about and then, you know, attempting to identify new ones. And, and these have found thousands of these objects already, and even in terms of the, the subcategory of what we call potentially hazardous asteroids, and much as the name, much as I might imagine this describes things that could actually hit the Earth, uh, something like 1,200 of those have been found already. Uh, the good news is that uh, very few of them present any immediate threat at all, and, and even the one or two that there's a marginal risk attached to, you're looking at quite a long time in the future and quite a low risk. But... Of course, we know, unfortunately, from these kind of surveys that there are lots of objects that are slightly smaller than this, and being smaller, they reflect less sunlight, and that means they're fainter. And we're pretty sure there's an awful lot of those that we haven't found yet. What sorts of ideas are we putting forward that would actually help to save us? I'm assuming that we're not going for the Hollywood Armageddon-style... The, 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 yeah, no, I don't think we'll be hiring Bruce Willis to do this one, but... Um, <laughs> And the reason for that simply is actually if you ex- if you put a, a bomb in the centre of one of these objects and exploded it, well, yes, you'd get a lot of smaller pieces, but unfortunately most of those would still be on a collision course with the Earth and it might just make the damage worse. Um, but there are more serious suggestions, none of which have been tried, of course. Uh, it, it, there's an ex- uh, what sounds like an exotic idea anyway, where you use a, a, a large space probe as a kind of tractor, a gravitational tractor. Now there'll be a, a minuscule pull between the space probe and, and the asteroid sent to intercept. But if, if, the, if it sits in the right place, it could tug it off course over a period of many years, and that might just be enough to deflect it. 
Um, the other idea is to attach a sort of a low-level thruster to the side of an object and fire it for a long period of time in the same way and give it a gentle nudge. Uh, and the most violent approach is to use something like a bomb where you explode it near it. Again, perhaps if you needed a very, if you had a, a problem in this, you know, you didn't have much notice of one of these things and to give it a more violent push. But the, the crucial thing and the best way to approach it is to give them a gentle nudge out of the way in plenty of time so that if you then look back at it and say, 30 years' time, if that's the time it's predicted to hit, it'll have moved out of the way and won't be a problem. And also, this month we've seen in the skies above northern Britain some fantastic displays of the aurora. This is very rare to get them as far south as we've actually seen them. What's happening on the sun? Well, we're entering, uh, we're coming up towards a period of time known as sunspot maximum, when, as the name implies, the number of sunspots that you can see it, it rises to a high level. Now, I should, I should stress that uh, it's not safe to look at the sun directly. You need to project the image or buy a filter from an astronomy supplier, and it's not something to do if, you, if you're not sure about it. It's best to get advice first. But if you observe the sun, what you notice is the number of dark spots, the cooler regions on the surface, is higher at certain periods than other. There's an 11-year cycle, and we're ramping up to one of those maxima now. And at the same time that you get more sunspots, you tend to get more energetic outflows of material, um, things called solar flares, which are large explosions on the surface, and also coronal mass ejections, where a lot of material is ejected out through the sun's atmosphere, the corona, and right out into space, and quite often ends up in the vicinity of the Earth. Now... That CME, that coronal mass ejection, travels quite quickly, perhaps 2,000 kilometers a second. It's made up of charged particles, and if you move a charged particle, it generates a magnetic field. And what that means is that if you get a lot of those slamming into the Earth's magnetic field, it, it bounces it around. It basically distorts it, and it recovers and snaps around. And that has effects on the upper atmosphere of the Earth, uh, such that you get atoms there where electrons, the part of the particles of atoms, are, are knocked down through energy levels or excited and then de-excite. And as they do that, they generate light. Basically, a photon of light comes out and you get a characteristic green or red display, but actually extraordinarily beautiful if you've ever seen them. And that's what people in the north of England and, and, and uh, Scotland have been lucky enough to see this week. Extra activity on the sun may produce these beautiful displays, but it, it can also be quite risky for, certainly for things that we have out in orbit, but also for power networks down here on Earth. Is that something we need to be worried about as the sun's activity steps up? It, it's certainly something that we need to be aware of. Um, the, the problem with a space weather event is that the Earth's magnetic field fluctuates, and that can, tri that can trigger a number of effects. Firstly, you get enhanced radiation in space, literally the stuff coming from the sun. And if you're, if you're an astronaut on a space on a spacewalk, that might be a problem. It can also have a direct effect on satellites, um, and sometimes they need to be rebooted or the software needs to be reconfigured because the, the charged particles can change the logic states on the chip, so zero to one or one to zero, so it can corrupt the software. So perhaps next time your, your window manager shuts down, it might, might be uh, reasonable to blame it on the sun as well as the uh, software writer. But... Um, Actually, the, the more serious problem is that on the ground you can see interference of GPS systems, partly because the satellites might be affected, partly because it interferes with the, the upper atmosphere of the Earth that radio waves travel through and it distorts them. Uh, you can also see power outages, and that's because if you get a fluctuation in the Earth's magnetic field, it induces currents in power lines, and that additional load can cause uh, generators to pack up and transformers to pack up. And if you don't uh, mitigate that, if, you, if you're not aware of it and you don't think about ways to deal with it, you can actually get real blackouts. And that happened uh, in Quebec in 1989 and also in Sweden a few years later. So it is a real problem. Um, that's not to say that we should worry unduly about it, but it's certainly something that needs to be tackled and something that engineers have to take on board.
And we've seen activity stepping up a lot just in the last year or so. How long should we expect it to go on for before it starts to calm down? Uh, the soda cycle lasts about 11 years, so uh, we can expect to see an intensification of these events over the next couple of years, perhaps through to 2013 or 14. If you're watching the sun, you'll be able to see more sunspots, and also the odds of seeing displays of the northern lights of the aurora go up over that time. If you want to find out for yourself, there is a, a mailing list called Aurora Watch. They have a web page and a Twitter feed and so on, and they uh, send out alerts when there's likely to be a magnetic storm, and you can actually go out and look for them on that basis. It's better than leaving it to chance alone. I should say that it's possible to see them anywhere in the UK. In fact, they can even be seen down in France. But generally, the further north you are, the better. And you do, of course, need a clear sky, and, and uh, it helps if there's no full moon. But plenty of people have seen them, and, uh, you know, they're uh, fantastically beautiful things to watch. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. This month has also seen the discovery of an exciting and enormous galaxy cluster, informally named El Gordo. I'd like to introduce everyone to a new cluster. It's known as ACT Cluster J0102-4915, but unofficially it's nicknamed El Gordo, or the big one. And this has been discovered using combination of the Atacama Cosmology Telescope in Chile and NASA's X-ray Observatory Chandra. And it is the most massive and brightest cluster we've ever found in the early universe. Now, let me tell you a bit about clusters to begin with, because they are generally found relatively close to us, so in fairly low redshift. And when you look at a cluster, you've got perhaps hundreds, sometimes thousands of galaxies, all held together by gravity within a volume maybe 10, few tens of millions of light years across. So when you look at a cluster, you have the stars that make up the galaxies that you see in the visible light. They're just about 1% of the total mass of the cluster. You've got much more matter in hot gas it's called the intracluster medium that pervades the whole cluster it lies in the space between the galaxies and of course the largest component is the dark matter which doesn't give off any light at all but you're you're aware it's there because of its gravitational influence on the visible objects so if we go back to el gordo you have a cluster of phenomenal size strangely to distance 7 billion light years away from Earth. So it's back in the very, you know, relatively early universe. And a cluster both this size and this distance is extremely rare. It's interesting how it was found. It was detected through something called the zonyev zeldovich effect. Now, Dominic was mentioning earlier about the cosmic microwave background, this light that suffuses the whole sky. Now, if you have a cluster of galaxies between you and the cosmic microwave background, the hot gas in that atmosphere that lies between the galaxies can subtly alter the signal from the microwave background. And so you have these little signature stamps where there might be clusters that were then followed up with the Chandra X-ray telescope, and that's how this was discovered. It's enormous potential to find these kind of clusters in the high-redshift universe. The interesting thing about El Gordo is that when you look at the shape of the X-ray atmosphere, it's all distorted, And it reveals that it's the site of a massive collision. So you've got two clusters of galaxies slamming into each other at several million miles per hour. And this supports the idea that galaxy clusters build up as the universe ages. um, Smaller groups and subclusters merge to form larger clusters. And usually we just look at the after effects in the modern day universe. It's really exciting to see this process actually happening. And it's very interesting what happens to all these different components, like the stars, the dark matter, and the hot gas within such a collision. Because the galaxies, there's there's so much space between the galaxies, they more or less pass through each other 
unscathed. The dark matter only reacts to itself through gravity, and that tends to just kind of go past each other. But the X-ray gas gets slammed together. You get these large, you imagine gas cloud, it gets squeezed, it gets compressed, it gets distorted, it gets slowed, and it separates out from the dark matter. And so you have the ordinary matter being separated out from the dark matter in this kind of collision. So we can see that the gas, which is the dominant form of the ordinary matter, gets separated from the dark matter. What will be interesting to see is how the galaxies and the dark matter behave, whether they both separate out or whether they keep together. And I mean, this may seem rather esoteric, but the point is, if we can understand how clusters interact, we are learning something about the very nature of dark matter on huge scales and how it may be, in, you know, dark matter and two clusters interact with each other or not and how they interact with the, the visible and the X-ray components of a cluster. And to see this in the early universe is potentially very exciting. What is the significance of it being so early? Did we think that the galaxy clusters just wouldn't have had enough time to form to that size by that time in the universe's history? That's precisely the issue because there's a lot of argument about when these galaxy clusters begin to build up. And certainly 10, 20 years ago, it was thought that really rich clusters only existed in the nearby universe and they had built up relatively recently. The fact that we're discovering these large colliding clusters of galaxies way out, much, much earlier than we anticipated, means we have to rethink the rate at which galaxy clusters build up. And the date has been set for the next leap second, as well as the further debate around whether we need them at all. Yes, there have been a couple of announcements this month about how we keep track of time. The first of those was that there's going to be a leap second at the end of June this year. So rather than going from 23.59.59 straight on to midnight, clocks will go 23.59.59, 23.59.60 with the extra second and then go to midnight. And there's also been a debate this month as to whether we really need to insert these leap seconds into our system of time. So I thought this was an interesting moment to have a look at what leap seconds are and why we have to to put them into our time. The problem essentially comes down to how we define what the second is. Now, in the old days, that used to be very simple because... If you take the period between the sun being at its highest point in the sky on one day and on the next day, you can call that 24 hours. And then you divide each of those hours into 60 minutes. And then you divide each of those minutes into 60 seconds. So a second is simply one eighty-six thousand and four hundredth part of a day. And to tell the time, what you do is you look at the sky. You look at where the sun is or you look at where stars are and that was a historical function of places like the Royal Greenwich Observatory. And from doing that, you can tell exactly what the time is. Now, in the 1970s, it became possible to build machines that could keep track of time more accurately than that. These were atomic clocks, where you can take an atom which produces a very specific colour of light, and that specific colour of light has a frequency, and you can count cycles of that light and you can say a second is a particular number of cycles of this atom in this atomic clock. And that made keeping track of time much easier, because if you were in a lab doing an experiment where you had to time things incredibly precisely, you could have a machine that would tell you exactly how much time had passed. Now, that's all very well if your definition of your seconds coming out of your machine aligns exactly with what the Earth is doing in its rotation every day. 
Now, in fact, what turned out to be happening was that the Earth is changing its rate of rotation from one year to the next, and there are many reasons why it does that. Melting of ice sheets, earthquakes, for example, would change the moment of inertia of the Earth and so change the speed very slightly at which it rotates. So, in fact, the old-fashioned definition of a second was changing slightly from one year to the next. So in order to keep the time kept by atomic clocks in sync with the Earth's rotation, you have to every now and then make minor adjustments for the fact that the Earth is, is changing its rotation speed. And we don't always know why the Earth is doing what it's doing. For example, in 1999, there was quite a significant blip in the Earth's rotation. We don't actually know what that was. It must have been some subsurface event, we assume, but there was nothing on the surface that we could attribute that to. So if the rate of change of the Earth's rotation isn't actually constant and we don't really understand what it is, I presume we can't add a leap second every, say, 50 years. So why are we doing it now? That's right. This is a real problem. You have to really wait and see what the Earth is doing before you can decide where your leap seconds are going to be. And if you're trying to do science which involves timing things very accurately and you are, for example, perhaps on a space mission where you know you want to do a burn of your spacecraft in exactly 500 days' time to an nearest second, then you don't know what your clock will be reading because you don't know whether a leap second will have been inserted between now and then. And this is leading to the debate as to whether we really need these leap seconds because they're adding complexity to our timekeeping system, which is a problem for people who do need to time intervals to sub-second accuracy, like astronomers, for example. And obviously, if the correction is only about one second in three years, then that's not really very noticeable to the man on the street, who might notice if, for example, there was a drift of half an hour or so. But it's going to take thousands of years for these one-second corrections to add up to half an hour. So perhaps wouldn't it be more sensible if rather than having leap seconds every three years, we had a leap hour every few thousand years? And that is the argument for abolishing the leap second. The counter-argument is that this is detaching our timekeeping from the progress of the sun across the sky as it has been for the whole of human history up until this point. Now, the outcome of the debate this month was, in fact, that there was no clear consensus between countries as to whether they were happy to get rid of these leap seconds. So they've put the decision off until 2015, and we shall wait and see in 2015 whether they decide to abolish leap seconds. But the public are very used to the idea of of a leap year, when we actually add a, a whole day every few years. So why would adding a second be that big a problem? Yes, now leap years are actually caused by a different problem, which is that the length of a year, which is how long it takes for the Earth to orbit around the Sun and how long it takes for the Earth's seasons to repeat in their cycle, is around about 365.2524, etc., days. And so it's not an exact clean number of days that it takes. So if you had a calendar that had the same number of days in each year, either 365 or 366, then that small fractional part would add up, and over time the seasons would start to drift through the year. So that's why we have to have leap years every fourth year 
to correct for that fractional part which would otherwise build up and cause a drift of the seasons. So there are many problems of the cycles that we would like our calendar to reflect and of course months are another problem because the moon cycle of 29 point something um, and not an integer number of days either and that causes problems in the Muslim kind, obviously, which drifts very significantly through the year from one year to the next. So th- there are many problems of the units that we want, days, months, years, not being integer multiples of one another, and us having to insert time into our calendar to make these events happen at regular intervals. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come, we'll find out why it's so hard to see hydrogen in space and how MIRI will help. But first, Rob Foster asks if maps of the sky showing galaxy distributions are accurate for where the galaxies actually are today. This is a really excellent question, and in fact, Rob is absolutely right that the maps we produce of where galaxies are don't show us where the galaxies are today. They don't even show us a map of where galaxies were some time ago. It's all jumbled up because as we make the map, the parts of the map that are further away from us, we're seeing as they were some time ago because the light has taken a while to travel to us, whereas the parts of the map which are closer to us, we're seeing much nearer to the present day. So actually the overall map shows a kind of mixture of the universe in different stages. A lot of work goes into understanding that and related effects so that when we come to turn that map into a better understanding of what fundamentally is going on in the universe, we're not kind of confused by the fact that we're mixing up results from different times in the universe's past. But nonetheless, the maps themselves shouldn't be taken quite at face value. Thanks, Andrew. Freddie Alderson in Lagos in Portugal has been classifying galaxies on Galaxy Zoo. And he asks, why do galaxies come in such a broad range of colours? Well, yes, this is an interesting observation. We, we all know that galaxies come in a range of shapes. Um, most of them are those kind of ball-shaped, what we call elliptical galaxies. And then you've got the flat pancake ones, which are the, the spiral galaxies. But another feature is that galaxies come in a range of colours. And this is particularly evident when you look at some of the beautiful images from some of the large ground-based and space-based telescopes. So when you look at the visible light from a galaxy, it comes from the billions of stars that comprise that structure. And the colours depend on what those stars are and the the types of stars and their colours. So if you see a blue region in a galaxy, that means there are lots of hot, young blue stars there. And these are very massive stars. They have to burn very hot. They have to burn their fuel very fast. Uh, That gives them the blue colour, but it also means they don't actually live very long. And so... If you see blue stars, they can only be young stars recently created. You've got active star formation. Redder stars are much cooler, older stars. And so if you see a yellowy kind of red, golden colour of a galaxy, it means that there's no more active star formation. The population you're left with is more or less what's left behind when all the young blue stars have led their lives and exhausted themselves. So if you look at an elliptical galaxy, it's got the yellowy-reddish colours showing that there isn't much cold gas to form stars going on in it. And compare that to a spiral galaxy, 
you look in the bulge, that's the central ball of stars in the spiral galaxy. That's got that yellow-reddish colour because it's comprised of older stars. But the spiral arms in the disk are this fantastic blue, and that's showing you where regions of active star formation are occurring. So by looking at the colours of a galaxy, you understand something about what's happening, where the star formation history within that galaxy And, of course, there are other effects that can happen between us and the galaxy, what happens to the light once it's left those stars. And if there's a lot of dust in the galaxy, it can scatter the blue light and the galaxy appears redder, perhaps, than it would otherwise do. Or if there's dust along the line of sight to the galaxy. And, of course, there's always redshift. If you are observing galaxies way across the universe, their light will have been shifted to the red, and that will also affect the colours that we see in the visible images from telescopes. Freddie is referring in particular to galaxies that he was looking at in Galaxy Zoo, which is a a citizen science project where you get to classify different galaxies. Those pictures were taken in the visible range, so they are accurate colours. But of course, we need to be careful when talking about the colour of an astronomical photograph, because so many of them are in false colour or actually built up using not the colours that we would see with our eyes. Oh, yes, you're entirely right. And if you really want to talk about the colour of a galaxy, you would have to include right down to the radio, up through microwaves, and what it's doing, the ultraviolet and the X-ray. And all of those would tell you a different aspect of the galaxy. Remember, when you look at the visible colours, it's only telling you about the stars and what's going on, and there are plenty of other colours out there. Thank you, Carolyn. Jane Madden and Vincent Risi have both written in to us to ask about the history of the solar system. Here, with the history in a nutshell, is Dominic Ford. Well, stars form from objects we call molecular clouds, which are essentially just slightly denser clumps of gas in a galaxy. And what needs to happen for that molecular cloud to turn into a star is it needs to collapse under its own gravity into a very small mass that we call a star. Now, that's difficult because any gas cloud will have pressure pushing it outwards. Imagine that you take a balloon and you squeeze it. The balloon pushes back because of that gas pressure. So you need a very specific set of conditions for that gas to be able to collapse. It needs to be cold, and that helps because gas pressure decreases as you go down in temperature. And it also helps if you've got something to provide some compression to start that collapse off. And, for example, if you have a nearby supernova go off, that can really help because it provides a shock wave to that gas and starts it off collapsing. Now, once this collapse occurs, it undergoes a catastrophic uh, failure where once you go below a certain uh, size, the gravity just takes over and collapses it down. And the central core will very rapidly, within a million years or so, collapse down and start nuclear fusion. And then you have a protostar, which is going to turn into a star. Now, that's just the central part of this cloud. The, The outer layers... Some of those will be blown off when the heat of this fusion starts in the core. Some of them will continue to swirl around this protostar, and the friction of that gas swirling around will flatten it down into a disk. And so what you have at this point is a protostar at the centre and this swirling disk of gas and dust around it that we call a protoplanetary disk. Now, within that disk, a similar process then happens um, in a hierarchical fashion to form planets in that disk. So you have clumps of material which are slightly denser than other places in the disk, and those will have stronger gravity and they will attract more material to come towards them, and they will then themselves collapse down to form planets 
Now, we don't entirely understand how that process happens. We think it happens within about 10 million years. But I expect in about 10 years' time, we will know a lot more about that with telescopes like ALMA, which will be able to study these protoplanetary disks and really see these planets in the process of forming. But within 10 million years, you have these planets orbiting around your protostar, which is rapidly turning into a star. Now, in our own solar system, we think that's probably more or less the end of the story, and that the planets you formed back then have been in much the same places ever since. The reason we think that is that Jupiter is an incredibly massive planet in the middle of the solar system. And if any other planet were to get too close to Jupiter, then its orbit would be disrupted, because the gravity of Jupiter would disrupt the gravitational attraction of that planet for the Sun. And the result would almost certainly be that that planet would get kicked out of the solar system. We still have planets like the Earth and Mars in our solar system, despite them being vulnerable to Jupiter's gravitational field. So probably there haven't been mass movements of planets around since its formation. Now, the two events that we think have happened since that time are the formation of the Moon, which we think happened about 4.5 billion years ago, about half a billion years after the formation of the solar system, and we think that happened in a massive impact of some mars size object with the Earth that broke it into two. And then about four billion years ago, there was this period we call the late heavy bombardment, when all of the terrestrial planets seemed to acquire huge numbers of craters. And we think perhaps that was because there was some minor change in the orbits of the planets, especially Jupiter and Saturn, and that may have stirred up the asteroids in the solar system and caused some of them to collide with terrestrial bodies like the Earth. So since they formed, our planets have been relatively stable, at least so we think. Do we think that's a a typical case, or would we expect planets and solar systems to to be less stable and to move around a lot? Now, when we've looked at planets orbiting stars other than our own, we've found a lot of hot Jupiters, and these are very massive planets like Jupiter, but orbiting very close to their parent stars. And that suggests that perhaps these are solar systems that formed... Perhaps they were a bit like our own solar system once upon a time. But through gravitational interactions with nearby stars, the orbits of those planets have been stirred up, and these Jupiter-sized planets have migrated to different orbits, probably kicked out any Earth-like planets from those solar systems and ended up very close to their parent stars. And Barry Conlin, writing from Nottingham, wants to know if, shortly after the Big Bang, the universe actually expanded faster than the speed of light. The universe has expanded faster than the speed of light in the sense that the distance between galaxies at opposite sides of our visible universe has increased faster than that speed. So the question is, how can that be squared with the fact that we normally say the absolute speed limit for anything in the universe is the speed of light? And the answer is that speed is only really defined in what we call a local way. What that means in practice is that if you measure the speed of something that's very near to you, uh, that would be something on the Earth or something in the solar system or our galaxy or, or even a nearby galaxy. If you measure that speed, then that number has the same meaning as we sort of intuitively think of in normal life as being a speed. But on really large scales, that's no longer the case. Space and time get curved and distorted in accordance with Einstein's theory of general relativity. And 
when there's significant distortion in space and time itself, then speed becomes a much more slippery idea. And if we choose to define speed in the way that I did at the beginning of this answer, that is, the rate at which the distance between galaxies is increasing, then this speed limit simply doesn't apply to it anymore. And finally for this month, I met Dr Helen Walker from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, who introduced me to MIRI. MIRI is the mid-infrared instrument which will actually fly on the James Webb Space Telescope. And the plan is that this instrument will operate, it's called the mid-infrared, it's about um, just off the red end of the spectrum that you can see, it's 5 microns to 28 microns. And it's a very important region of the spectrum because that's actually where we can start to see the very first galaxies at the very edge of the universe just after they'd formed. We're quite used to the idea of thermal infrared cameras. How does MIRI actually work? Is it just an adapted camera? If only it were simple that it was just an adapted camera... One of the blackest arts known is making an infrared detector. These are very special detectors. Um, They're very sensitive, they're very low noise. For example, if you were trying to look at the Hubble Deep Field with MIRI, it's too bright. Those galaxies are way too bright for MIRI. You're now going to look for very, very faint galaxies, and so you want something that's incredibly sensitive MIRI operates at 6.2 degrees above absolute zero, and that stops MIRI drowning out the signal from a faint galaxy with its own heat, and so we can actually start to look out and see the very cool universe. And how will you keep it that cold? How will you get it down to its operating temperature? MIRI will be cooled in several stages. Um, There is a natural cooling with having the sun shield there so it will certainly be down to about 200 kelvin 200 degrees above absolute zero then there will be various stages of mechanical cooler we will not be using liquid helium this is why we're a mid-infrared instrument rather than a long wave infrared instrument because then we don't need the helium and we will actually be doing the cooling by mechanical means similar sort of system to the one you have in your fridge where you can cool mechanically and you create the liquid and the liquid circulates and then it turns into a gas and turns back to a liquid. And you can do that by mechanical means so that the plan is not to have any liquid coolant like liquid helium which evaporates and boils off and then once you've emptied the tank it's game over. Um, This can keep going. It must also be a challenge to to filter out all of the visible light and all of the other light that would otherwise, again, drown out the signal and cause it to heat up. The detectors on MIRI are not sensitive to visible light. They're specially built so that they operate only in the infrared region. We have a camera for MIRI and also some spectrometers which look at the kind of fingerprints from molecules and atoms. And they have special filters in front of them so that we can select very carefully which particular region we want to look at and which molecule. And what sort of molecules are you actually going to be able to see? We can actually look at a very wide range of molecules, but the one that is of particular interest is hydrogen. Hydrogen is very abundant in the universe. It's the most common element, and yet it's the most difficult molecule to spot 
because it has very few lines and they're off in the infrared. And there's one particular line at 27 microns, which we can look at with Miri, and we are really going to be chasing that one down all over the universe because it's very rare that you get the opportunity to observe the hydrogen molecule directly. And as well as seeing this hydrogen that we so far haven't been able to see, what structures do you expect to see? What Miri will be looking for are galaxies just after they formed, the very first galaxies. They'll be visible because there'll be a lot of star formation going on. My own particular research interest is, shall we say, the other end, um, nearby stars, which have the sort of rubble left over from when the star was formed, which might make planets in the future. If we look at that in the infrared, we can see this very cold material as it's gradually forming into bigger and bigger lumps. And, of course, when you actually get a planet, that will start attracting all the material around it in the debris disk. And so, hopefully, with the 6.5-metre James Webb Space Telescope, we'll have enough resolution to actually see the gaps in the debris ring where the planet has formed. So it'll be a bit like Saturn's rings, where you see all these little different types of ring. With us, it will be a case that maybe there's a planet in the middle there rather than one of those very small moons. And that should help to enhance our knowledge of how planets form in the first place. What we've found over the last 15 to 20 years is now that we know there are planets out there, our whole theory about how planets formed is completely wrong. When you've got a sample of one, your own solar system, you make up some wonderful theories, and they were perfectly fine and explained how our own solar system formed. But now we've gone elsewhere and looked elsewhere and we can actually see these other planets. They are nothing like our solar system. And so our theories really need a radical overhaul. And the first problem is always, how do you start making a planet? We've now come to the conclusion that planets don't often form where they are currently. You know, we now think that some of the planets in our own solar system formed a lot further out than they are now and gradually migrated inwards. And it certainly must be the case with other planets around other stars that they are forming in a very different place to where we see them. So if we can look back at these debris disks and start seeing where the planets are forming in those, um, it gives you a clue as to where to start with in your theory. So not only does it allow us to image things we haven't been able to see before, but it gives us some new scientific answers. Going back to being able to see hydrogen, what scientific questions do you hope to answer with that? When you're looking at hydrogen, you're looking at the most abundant element in the universe. With the molecular hydrogen, you're looking at the very coldest parts of the universe. So you're looking at the dust clouds, clouds of gas before any stars have formed in them. As soon as you get a star forming, the first thing it does is warm up the cloud. And so when we start looking at molecular hydrogen, we're looking at those places which are going to form stars a long way in the future. And if you can actually start seeing how much molecular hydrogen there is in that cloud, you can start to see whether this is a place that's got enough material in it to form a star in in a few billion years' time. Oh, not long, not long. Up until now, we've really had to wait until the stars sort of started collapsing and forming and warming up the region so we can see it. Whereas with this, you could actually get there just before it happens. 
So it should also answer questions about star formation as well as planet formation. It will give us a big clue about star formation because it is, again, a part of the universe that we've not really been able to look at very easily. Up until now, we've really relied on not the molecule of hydrogen but the molecule of carbon monoxide, which always lives in close proximity because they, they like the same sort of temperature read domain and... We can find carbon monoxide very easily with uh, many ground-based telescopes, but we always then have to guess how much molecular hydrogen that implies is in the same cloud. So to actually go out there and say, well, yeah, you said there was 10 billion stars worth of molecular hydrogen in this cloud, well, you're out by a factor of 100, could make a big difference. Miri is still on the ground here at Rutherford Appleton Labs at the moment, What's the plan for once it's up there? How will we further develop the science? When we finally get Miri cold enough and working, I suspect the first thing we'll find is something completely different. We've already had one change of direction because when Miri was first being planned and designed, we hadn't found any exoplanets. And so now based on the experience of Hubble, where they hide the star behind the sort of crossbar wedge. We have coronagraphs on our instruments, so we can create artificial eclipse, remove the starlight from our detectors, and then look for exoplanets. And this is one of the things we're actually testing out during our test campaign on the flight model, to actually see how easily we could observe exoplanets using our instrument which was never planned to do that. Helen Walker from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. And do keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter at Naked Scientists or you can just join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.